we're obsessed with the remarkable instead of just doing the unremarkable with remarkable consistency, but it's doing the unremarkable with remarkable consistency that ends up creating these amazing breakthroughs and, um, and allows us to tap into those things. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. To learn more, visit baileymiles.com and be sure to rate, review, and follow us on all social media platforms. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Joshua Medcalf is a best-selling author of books like Chop Wood, Carry Water, Pound the Stone, and many others, as well as a keynote speaker and founder of Train to Be Clutch. He works with some of the top high-performing teams, brands, and organizations. Joshua played soccer at Vanderbilt and then Duke University. While at Duke, he learned about the mental aspect of training and performance. From there, he decided not to pursue law school and chose to move across the country to California to serve at a homeless shelter. He then began to start working with athletes and relentlessly studied mindset, psychology, and mental toughness. Since then, he has worked with leaders, athletes, and business owners all over the world. On the show, Joshua shares his story of growing up, playing soccer, identity, practicing what you preach, training hard, focus, surrendering the outcome, and how to fall in love with the process of becoming great. Enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Joshua Medcalf. Joshua, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Yeah, well, if you wouldn't mind, give our listeners a little bit of context on you and what life was like growing up for you. Where do you want me to start? Let's just go back right when you, you know, growing up in, in Oklahoma and just playing sports and maybe the impact of your siblings and your parents and some of the lessons that you learned from them at a young age. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where you're at right now. Yep. Small world. And I then at one moved to Chicago. We lived in Chicago for three years from Chicago. We went to Detroit, Detroit for three years, then moved to Akron, Ohio. And Akron is where my life kind of changed pretty uh, dramatically. Dad, um, dad was becoming an, an eye surgeon. And so we went from being dirt poor to, you know, he'd grown up in trailer parks. We had to duct tape his trailer together, fight his way back across the railroad track, sell drugs, all kinds of crazy single parent, super low income situation. And then we moved back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And life is supposed to be great. We're living the American dream. Dad has become an eye surgeon. He's opened his own practice. We get a house that is in Broken Arrow with a field in the background, two blocks away, we can see my dad's office. We have a pool, everything is great. Next summer, it turns into the American nightmare. Uh, my baby brother, uh, my best friend drowns. I'm the one that pulls him out of the pool. I'm eight, nine years old. Uh, he passes away 30 days later. And um, so I kind of, you know, uh, it, it hit me harder than probably it would have with other kids. I was autistic, but didn't know it. And so I'd always had a hard time socially. 
and losing my baby brother was just really, really um, tough. Mm. Uh, I kind of threw myself into sports even more than I had up to that point. And I uh, transferred uh, from eighth grade to ninth grade to from one private uh, Christian school to another, these little small schools. And I had to sit out a year. And so I couldn't play basketball, which was my love. And then I go and I start playing uh, soccer uh, exclusively. I cut everything else out, focus on soccer. I knew soccer was going to take me the furthest. And so that ends up uh, being a pretty good decision. I get a partial scholarship to play soccer at Vanderbilt. They only had 2.1 scholarships for 30 something people on the team. I had a 10% scholarship was actually a, a bigger one. Um, and it was right around the time that my family could afford the $4,000 a month, uh, extra on top of that. Um, it was kind of still a big sacrifice for me to get to go there, but it was a huge deal, especially to my dad that he'd grown up in a trailer park and I was getting a scholarship to play and attend a school like Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. I did not have the academic background to be at a place like Vanderbilt. I had a 21 on my ACT. I didn't like school. I hated school. I fought <laughs> with a lot of teachers. I, I just, it didn't make sense to me. And it wasn't necessarily that I couldn't hack it. It was just the way I'm kind of wired and being forced to do things. It just never, never yeah. worked well. So I struggled both uh, academically, athletically, socially. I uh, was kicked off the team five times in two and a half years and was struggling academically to even, you know, get a 3.0. They end up actually cutting our soccer program after my junior year. And I hang up my cleats. I'm going to focus on my education. I end up getting cut from the Vanderbilt club soccer team. And so then a few months later, I get a call from a kid that was on our team that transferred to Duke. And he's like, hey, do you want to come play soccer at Duke? And I was like, uh, I think a better question is, is the number one team in the country interested in a guy who got kicked off the team five times in two and a half years, who had mediocre statistics, who just got cut from the club team. <laughs> and uh, apparently they were because they had a guy that got injured. They had some scholarship money available. And so by the grace of God, I get a full ride scholarship to play on the number one team in the country. I get there. I'm now playing with and against the best players in the country. And I'm the last pick on the team when we play pickup games. And I'm taking a sports psychology class with a guy by the name of Greg Dale. Greg Dale tells us he thinks that sports are over 70% mental. I think that he's crazy. I want to throw my computer at his head. <laughs> uh, if sports are over 70% mental, then why has nobody taught us how to train mentally? We spend 100% of our time on physical training. Nobody's taught me how to do anything. Um, when it comes to sports psychology, mental training. And so this is kind of where I struggled with school. It's like, you can't just say like that. You can't say that sports are 70% mental and then spend a hundred percent of the time on physical training. The way my brain works is if sports are over 70% mental, then we should have spent a lot of time on this. And so I didn't want to believe him, but he worked with people like Peyton Manning and Ichiro and banking leaders would fly around the world uh, in to meet with him. And so I attempted to do what he talked about. And in a very short period of time, I went from being the last pick on the team 
uh, during pickup games to the Duke student athlete of the week, the ACC player of the week, and finish second in points on our team to the very best player in the country, Mike Grella. And then I really got mad because I went, okay, he was right. And why in the world is this not being taught everywhere? Why aren't we learning this in elementary school? Why aren't we learning this in middle school? Why did I have to get the Duke to learn this? So I asked myself what I would do if money didn't matter. It wasn't go to law school. It was um, serve people, which was kind of ironic because I didn't like when we would do service events and things like that. But I kind of confused some of my friends and family when I told them that. But I skipped scholarships to law school and move across the country into a homeless shelter downtown Los Angeles. That sounded very hick. Uh, Los Angeles. <laughs> From Tulsa. So there you go. <laughs> exactly. The, the Tulsa, the Tulsa Coming back flying out. out right there. Goodness. That's right. Um, so I, I moved downtown Los Angeles and into a homeless shelter at the Dream Center. I live and serve at the Dream Center for seven months. We go into Watts and deliver food. We, uh, I, I slept on Skid Row during that time. And then from there, I had an idea for the organization I wanted to start. I moved into the closet of a gym at a church, uh, first family church in Whittier, uh, about 45 minutes south of the city. And I live there for nine months. I start going into Watts by myself to train the athletes, Imperial Courts Housing Projects, one of the toughest housing projects in the country. Start training some of the athletes there. Did that for about three years. I lived in the closet of the gym for nine months. My mom came and stayed with me in the closet of the gym. She didn't love that I was living in the closet (laughs) and realized that I was very serious about what I was going to do and I wasn't going to come back. So she asked me to find an apartment for her, but really to get me out of the closet. And (laughs) so we, we end up moving in there together in Glendale and uh, ended up living with my mom for five years in Glendale, Playa Vista, while I was building my organization, and then end up uh, creating the first mental training apps in the world for basketball, soccer, and golf, Uh, became the director of mental training for UCLA women's basketball for seven years, Uh, Oregon women's golf for a year, traveled, was speaking, Uh, IMG Academy asked me to head up mental conditioning and leadership, I said no, but I, during that time, that's what pushed me to, I knew nobody had written the go-to book in sports psychology. Mm-hmm. So I didn't leave bed for almost two months and I write all my books on my phone and I just wrote and I ended up writing it. Ironically, it started as um, start here. Mental training finally made simple. John Gordon, a good friend of mine and like a big brother to me in the writing world, He said, uh, there's a fable in there that's 40 pages, throw out the rest of this book and just expand the fable. That's your book. And I was like, I don't write fables. I write real books. (laughs) And he just, he just kept hounding me for, uh, weeks about that. And then finally I did it and he was right. And it, it kind of went viral. It's still, you know, it's self-published. It sells a hundred copies a day. Um, it's, if not the go-to book in sports ecology, I don't know what is. Mm. Um, and yeah, and then went, in, went on to write nine total books. And yeah. Yeah, pretty normal story. So <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, going back, there's a lot in your story already, but going back even into high school, um, you were going from playing basketball and then going full-time into soccer. And then you're in college and you're in soccer. The the program's cut, cut off the, the practice or the, uh, the club team. And then you go to Duke. And so kind of throughout your story, you see a lot of like focus and commitment to things. Is that something that you were naturally inclined to do one, whenever you set your mind to something that you were just going to fall through? I think, I think being autistic, I think being autistic is really helpful with Mm. that. So like ever since I've been young, like, again, it's funny you being in Tulsa, like, and probably pretty close to the house where this happened a lot. Uh, you know, when, when I would have my friends over and we would, you know, uh, on a Friday or Saturday night, we'd play beer pong. Mm -hmm. And like when everybody else was like socializing, I I was practicing Mm -hmm. like that just always came. Social interactions have always been very challenging for me, like incredibly challenging, triggering sometimes in ways that I can't even articulate. Um, even at 38 now and having learned all sorts of cognitive behavioral tools and have written some of the most practical cognitive behavioral therapy books, it's still challenging for me at 38 at times. So at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 24, it's always been way easier for me to immerse myself in a craft and training and practice than it is to have small talk conversations with people. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, when you're on the spectrum, at least the way that I am, that's always been a, uh, a safety blanket for me that I can, that I can move towards. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Like my brand is called train to be clutch that that wasn't a cool marketing slogan that I came up with. That's what I had done in my life. And I'd realized that I could beat people that were way more talented than me, that were way even more skilled necessarily than I was if I was really, really deliberate about certain types of training and focus and blocking certain things out. So yeah, I would definitely say that I have a predisposition for being able to focus for long periods of time if I have autonomy and I'm interested and passionate about it. Sure. You tell me that I have to do something. (laughs) Yeah, there's virtually zero chance. I mean, 21 on my ACT. I, I remember actually another funny Tulsa story. I had taken AP history and one Saturday I walked in for the AP test and I looked at it. I, I, I kid you not. I sat in that test for no less than two minutes. I looked at it and I was like, I got no chance. And I just walked up and handed the test back to the lady. And she just looked at me kind of dumbfounded. And I was like, yeah, I, I'm not going to waste our time and just walked out. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I mean, it it, awesome. it works in certain areas. There's other areas where, you know, a, a woman that I live next to that was kind of like a second mom to me in, in that same neighborhood, she said one time, she goes, man, you either have the patience of Job or like no patience at all. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that, that, that checks out. One or the other. Well, it's interesting yeah. as you get to Duke 
And first off, you know, you're like the, the typical uh, standard athlete with the high AT score going to Vanderbilt, Duke, all these places. But you get to Duke and you have the opportunity to be a part of a great team and competing against some of the best people. And you talked about the mental component, which I know we'll dive into a lot of your books and some of the things that you do today. But what did it look like initially kind of understanding like the mental component is really important? And what are the kind of the application things that you were doing while you were at Duke as a player to kind of help you? hit that next threshold maybe? Yeah, great question. Uh, first thing I will be clear about is we were a very talented team. We were not a good team. We were actually a terrible team. We were comprised of a whole bunch of high ego individuals that uh, could not coalesce and come together and put their egos aside to benefit the team. We should have very easily competed for a national championship that year. And because of uh, egos uh, and selfishness and guys that were way more concerned about their individual careers and stats than team, we got knocked out in the first round of the NCAA tournament. So um, that is a whole story in and of itself. But the stuff for me personally that was really helpful was it was pretty basic whenever I was at Duke because I only had two months of you know taking classes. And I, I think the classes was maybe twice a week or three times a week. It wasn't a lot of time and I wasn't meeting individually with Greg Dale at that time. I still didn't really buy in. So the there were a few things one that was really really important was this kind of identity piece and so my whole life as i said i grew up in uh, chicago from like one to four one of the first things i ever said was go bears Mm -hmm. and my family called me bear if you in tulsa ask around more people would recognize that name than they would joshua medcalf they know Jonathan Medcalf for my brother, but Bear, uh, what, like that name people knew, and especially in the sports world. And so um, one day Greg Dale is telling us how uh, he's like, yeah, you know, sometimes athletes will have this alter ego and they'll have like a triggering mechanism that like whenever they step across the, you know, the white line or whether they put on their jersey or snap a glove on. They have all these triggers for stepping into an an alter ego. And I'm like, how dumb is this? Like, (laughs) What in the world? Like, what are you talking about, man? (laughs) And, and then it like hit me. It was like, dude, your whole life has been an alter ego. And you always ask yourself, what would bear do instead of like, who you are. And then Tony Robbins has some exercises that he does with personalities and figuring out which of the personality, each of your personalities have a different name. And most humans have about three to four personalities with different names that they can live in and through. And one of them tends to run your life. And usually that's based off of coping mechanisms for, Uh, how to navigate the world based off of your experiences. 
And I realized down the road that Joshua Michael Medcalf was actually my most authentic, powerful, best place and personality for me to live out of. But at that time, it was it was bare. And so, you know, and you talk about uh, we're referencing earlier that either hot or cold or either patience of Job or no patience at all. Well, it's kind of that bipolarness of if you go by bear, well, you either have the angry grizzly bear or you have the teddy bear and there was nothing really in between. So you could talk to 25 different people and 13 of them would say that guy is the biggest I've ever met. And then you'd talk to 12 of them and be like, dude, that's my favorite human in the world. The kindest, most generous, patient, loving person around. Mm -hmm. Nobody was in the middle. It was either hate or love. And so, um, when he, when he talked about that, I realized that I had to shed that personality on the uh, sports field. And I did. And so I had them stop calling me bear. I was like, this isn't actually good for me. I need to, to stop. And so I, 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 they started calling me Josh. And the funny thing is my mom, my whole life had said, I named you Joshua, not Josh. If I wanted you to be named Josh, I would have named you Josh. And even, you know, looking in the Bible, like names are very powerful. Like mm -hmm. there's always when they had encounters, they would have a name change and names mean a, a lot. And so there was something emasculating to me about Josh, but it allowed me to not have the temper and anger outbursts. So my coach from Vanderbilt was actually more surprised that I went through an entire season without getting a yellow card or a red card because I would average seven yellow cards a season and at least one red. So um, he was way more surprised at that than he was that I finished second in points. Mm -hmm. So that was the biggest thing of understanding the identity and name piece. Then the, self-talk was really, really helpful because I realized I was my own worst enemy. I was beating myself up after I made mistakes. So it's tough enough if you make a mistake, but then beating yourself up and amplifying it and then even worse, directing your focus to the next time mm -hmm. on the mistakes, you're more likely to get more of those. And so what I started doing is I was like, okay, what's something that I can say to myself instead of beating myself up after a mistake? And so what I did is I said, okay, the next opportunity I get, I'm going to create a goal. The next opportunity I get, I'm going to score a goal. I don't know if that's the best thing. If I was working with somebody today, that's not the way I would do it. But this is, you know, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure this out on my own. This stuff is kind of brand new at this point. You know, there's very few people uh, that are teaching this stuff. There's definitely very few people that are quote unquote sports psychologists that, that can play. Sports psychologists were super fans. Yeah. They weren't athletes. They weren't <laughs> people who had done this stuff. They were regurgitating. They read in books. They were doing the best they could. And I'm grateful they did. But like there weren't people like myself that were practitioners that were, that, had, that were living this stuff in the trenches. They were academics. So that's the phrase that I came up with. I started to notice that it was working and I was like, okay, 
why do I need to wait until I make a mistake to start sowing this into my heart? So I would literally, I didn't play very much. My body physically was kind of breaking down. And so coach would come up to me before the game and he'd say, how many minutes do you have in you? And typically it would be between 20 and 40. So 90 minute game sometimes goes into overtime. Um, and I'm telling him 20 to 40 minutes. So not on the field very long. But the entire time I would be on the field, I would be saying, the next opportunity I get, I'm going to create a goal. The next opportunity I get, I'm going to score a goal. Well, without fully understanding it at the time, what I was doing is I was directing my focus with what you may call, what I would call linguistic intentionality towards opportunities. So my focus is opportunity, opportunity, opportunity versus Mistake, mistake, mistake. And so uh, I had a, a kid named Cole Grossman, who was one of the highest rated ranked kids and uh, recruits in the country who came in as a freshman whenever I was a, a fifth year senior. And one day he comes up to me and he's a funny kid. He's pretty smart aleck and really smart. And, and he, he goes, dude, how do you score goals for our team? Because you're not good at soccer. <laughs> And I was like, I don't know, man. All I can tell you is I walk around the field saying this over and over again. And I tend to find these little half chances. You know, I wasn't scoring beautiful goals. I was just scoring goals. Yeah. And, you know, assists, I was, I was pretty good at that. But the goals that I was scoring, it, a lot of them were just little small half chances that other people couldn't see. And that was a huge difference for me, especially from from Vanderbilt. Then the last thing that was really helpful was visualization. So it's not something I do a ton with people that I work with today, but it, I, I saw the, the impact of it pretty clearly in my life. So one day Greg Dale tells us, you know, you can use visualization to get better at something. And I'm like, this is where I, I just butt heads with these academics so hard. And especially the ones that are like, I was listening to a podcast the other guy other day, and this guy's like, "Yes, you know, I am a uh, I am a doctor of science. You know, all of this stuff that I teach. It's not that what these other guys are teaching is necessarily bad, but what I teach, what I am legally obligated to teach, is evidence based practices. I can only share evidence based practices. Oh, really, buddy? So <laughs> you you're what?" There's no evidence-based stuff when it comes to sports. Are you strapping Michael Jordan up with electronics before he goes and he plays and he's got the flu and he did what he did and Kobe Bryant and Tiger Woods? And no, you think that you can recreate this stuff in a lab? No, you can't. You can recreate something in a lab, but you can't recreate. Like it's this, it's the same issue with like, uh, I, I love Chris Voss and when he went into the to Harvard and he negotiated with them, you're talking about the lead negotiator for the FBI that's done real life negotiations all over the world versus people in academia that have studied stuff in their little cute cubicles and write about it in research journals. Like you're not going to win. You don't know what you're like. You may have an idea. You don't know what you're talking about compared sure. to somebody like Chris Voss that's in the trenches doing this. And so it's just, it's, it's hysterical to yeah. me. 
Um, oh, evidence-based practices. Yeah, sure, bud. Yeah. Um, so how, how about how about this? How about you go do something at a high level in sports and then come talk to me and tell me how your little evidence-based theories work? Uh, it's real easy when you work with people who are the very best in the world at what they do. They, they're kind of equipped in ways that maybe you helped them, maybe you did it. And this was my thing is like, what do you mean visualization is going to help me get better at something? How do I know that my physical practice isn't doing that? How do I know that my talent isn't doing that? Like, what are you talking about? I was like, all right, I'm going to try this out with heading the ball. Cause I was, am six, two, very tall, specifically six, one, three quarters flat footed, okay. but you know, uh, a, a target forward. I was, you know, usually uh, one of the taller players on the field and I never headed the ball, hated heading the ball, probably afraid of heading the ball. And so I was like, that's what I'm going to test this on because everything else, like I practice and have played this game for most of my life. How do I know whether it's my physical practice or the visualization that's actually working? But with heading the ball, I'm like, if this works with heading the ball, I know for sure it's from this weird voodoo visualization <laughs> stuff that this crazy guy that's never played sports at a high level is trying to teach me about. And so I start trying to visualize myself scoring a goal with my head. Very crude. I don't remember exactly how I did it. It was very hard because I didn't have memories to go off of because I never headed the ball. But I'm just trying once a day for five or 10 minutes to see myself scoring a goal with my head. We are playing, I forget now, but I think it was against Virginia Tech at home. Uh, Zach Pope dribbling down the right side, whips a ball in. I'm making a run in the box. And without even thinking about it, which I do think is – he here. This wasn't premeditated. I'm just making a run. Ball gets whipped in. I jump up in the air, snap, head this ball, back post, upper 90. One of the most beautiful goals of my life. Huh. If they, if, you know, if Sports Center was covering things like college soccer back then, you know, top 10 play for sure. And it blew my mind. And we, we actually had, there was a thing called ACC Select back then. It was brand new. And so I had this on film. I had to have watched it a thousand times. Just like, how did this happen? Like it, it, it felt like a dream watching me score this goal with my head, like an out of body experience. Angels in the outfield, this is, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is two weeks after I'd started working on visualizing. Wow. Okay. Uh, the next week we are playing um, Virginia on the road. And uh, we're down one goal with like 47 seconds left. And so we're just lumping balls forward, just, you know, last ditch effort. And a ball gets lumped into the box and I jump up, close my eyes, ball hits off the top or back of my head, somehow floats over the goalkeeper's hands and we tie the game. My girl scores in overtime. We win. So, all of a sudden, after never having scored a goal with my head, I scored two goals in the ACC. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, 
this stuff is is real. The second one was kind of fluky, but I think that's the interesting thing when you start using something like that, you put yourself in situations where something like that is actually in the realm of possibility instead of not even putting yourself in the situation because it's not even in your realm of possibility. So that was, those were the main three things that happened then. And that was enough of a spark for me to go. Greg Dale really argued with me about this a lot. He came and saw me in Santa Monica one time and was like, why don't you just go back and get your sports psychology degree? Like go to Tennessee like I did. And I was like, dude, I'm not going to learn from these people. I'm going to go on a self-directed journey. But I tried to study and learn everything I could about human beings and neuroscience and psychology and, and just figuring out what made sense and what made sense from a practical perspective. Again, you know, these guys saying all this evidence-based stuff, it's like, okay, well, sure. Like I want to know, like practically does this work and does this work for me? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't just give these people this stuff and be like, oh yeah. Like, no, like, and I, you know, just last, uh, in 2021, year and a half ago, I went out and won my club championship in golf. And like, I play competitive golf, uh, frequently. Like I've seen this stuff, not just me get lucky at Duke. And, and, I, and for a while I wondered, like, was I special or did I get lucky or like, did I have this kind of freak experience? But then at, 36 growing up poor didn't have a, a a golf game a golf swing growing up didn't really start to get to play golf until i started you know writing books and working with golf programs and getting access to the game and so had tons of bad habits had to overcome uh, a lot of challenges and seeing it play out there it was like oh wow like no this stuff really works and works across uh, a variety of, of spectrums, not to mention, sure, there's tens of thousands of people that I've worked with. But to me, what's always been important is like, can you practice what you preach? Mm. Like, can you can you do this thing? And, and truthfully, I always wanted to get through to the people like, like, you can always get through to guys like I was in a position where you're the last pick on the team. Like those people are always craving, what do I need to get better? I actually played golf with Mike Grella a couple uh, months ago in New York. And it's the first time I saw him since Duke. We've talked a ton, but I hadn't seen him. And I told him, I said, you know, Mike, you're the reason why I wanted to do this. Because you would never listen to Greg Dale. Later on in his career, he would, he'd write to me and be like, dude, I've, I've implemented everything that you're teaching but it, it took him a lot longer to figure that stuff out. And I knew that the reason why he wouldn't listen to Greg Dale is because he knew that Greg Dale couldn't do what he was talking about. Mm. He's like, dude, you're just an academic. Get out of my face. Like, And I wanted to get through to those kids because I knew they would listen to me because I'd done it. Mm-hmm. And so like one of the things, you know, I was at Wake Forest one time working with their women's golf program and they had this freshman phenom and I could tell she just wasn't listening and wasn't really interested in what I was talking about. And, and I was like, uh, Hey, grab a wedge. She was like, what? I was like, yeah, g- grab one of your wedges. She's like, why? And I was like, well, just, just grab one. And 
I was like, here, give me one. And I was like, see that target out there, 100 yards? There's a bullseye. I was like, let's see who can hit it first. I hit it on the second time. <laughs> and I was like, you know, do you blankety blank want to pay attention now? Like, I'm not regurgitating. I am, <laughs> I'm trying to show you stuff that I can do and that I have done and that can not just change your life in terms of golf, but it can change your life in terms of a lot of stuff. But there's just very few people in this industry that are practitioners. Most of them are researchers and, you know, these evidence-based teachers. And it's like, yeah, well, why don't, hey, grab a club, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to always constantly wanting to learn and grow and to take in as much as you can, but also apply it because it's, it's about being in the trenches and actually the application of doing it, not just the reading it. Uh, the regurgitating of it, but the doing. So you're learning throughout that process. And it's interesting when you talk about that, what is it you feel like that makes people really take it to heart? I mean, you touched on some of those things already, but take it to heart and apply it in the moment because there's probably one or two ways when you're trying to apply it, you can either take it and do it and be conscious of the things that you're not doing as opposed to the things Mm -hmm. that you need to do. And then maybe there's the other side where people are doing it and they're not necessarily conscious, so they never actually fully realize what they could be doing. Like, how tough is it to kind of train your mind to be conscious in the moment to make sure you're visualizing your all those things you talk about, um, and, and enables them to actually see the results by the actual doing of it as well. I think there's two parts to that. One is you know the type of training that you do and making sure that that's incredibly hard, challenging. And things like that. But then the other side of it is is the controllable piece of whether it's with coaches, whether it's with performance cue cards and things like that that we teach. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, yesterday I got over a shot and it was a club that I just put in and I kind of take in and out. But we our, our member guest is this week. And so I'm kind of experimenting of what clubs do I want in my bag. And, and I get over this shot and I completely black out. And I'm like, I cannot remember the two or three things that I need to do to execute this shot well with my swing. And I've been having some challenges the last couple of weeks with pure swing mechanic things. And so I've kind of fixed it, but there's like two or three things that I need to do to make sure that I hit it the way that I'm trying to hit it. And I literally just black out and don't back away from the ball. I just black out and swing. Mm-hmm. And I literally, I get up to the green and I, I look at one of my best friends and I go, dude, I just blacked out over that and couldn't remember my swing thoughts and just swung anyway. I was like, that was just really dumb. Like what <laughs> in the world? Now, I will say I don't do that very often in a tournament. Mm-hmm. In a tournament, I will back away and I'll, but one of the things that's really helpful is it's like, okay, so, you know, before this tournament, I will have a cue card and I will put it in my cart and it'll be right there. And so if I have one of those moments, it's, these are the three things that I need to do. And, and so in the controllable ways, having that stuff right there, you know, it's fascinating to me and having gotten to work with a ton of, you know, amazing uh, people in coaching is that, they just say the same stuff over and over and over again. Like when I was with UCLA, do you know how many times I heard like 
three phrases probably 50,000 times. Uh-huh. Stupid stuff. Like, box out, get lower, <laughs> get your hands up. Like, like the most basic things in the world, but like we forget. It's very easy to forget those things. So whether it's having a coach that's reminding you of them, you know, one of my coaching clients said to me, and I have my putting green right beside me right here. And I was, uh, I was putting and talking to him. And, and he said, he, just like uh, four days ago, he was like, he's like, all right, so what do you think the, you know, in this phase I need to be? And I was like, dude, it's the same. Like, there's nothing new. Hmm. Like, I just need you to do the stuff over and over again. Like, we in our society, and I think human nature, we get enthralled, obsessed with new innovation and the the sexy, cool stuff that's like, oh, what's the new thing? And, but then you look at like one of my favorite stories is the nine Michigan hospitals. And I think it was 2003 that, you know, they implement this new procedure, ends up saving $15 million, uh, over 1500 lives, reduces the infection rate by 66%. And this is the height of innovation, height of technology, technology advancements and scientific advancements. And it's a simple checklist. And then first thing on the checklist is wash your hands before going into the operating room. Well, we figured out in the 1800s that washing of our hands helps eliminate the spread of the disease or of diseases. But that doesn't mean that we do it, one. doesn't mean that we do it every time. Yeah. <laughs> and so just because we know to do something doesn't mean we do it. And it definitely doesn't mean that we do it every single time. And so, so often... If we'll just do, you know, that's where chop wood, carry water comes from. It's like, mm-hmm. if we'll just do the thing over and over and over again, the two or three things that we know we need to do every single time, we don't need something new. Yeah. We just need to do them over and over and over and over again, whether it's pound the stone, mm-hmm. whether it's chop wood, carry water, but it's just doing those things over and over again. So we we're we're obsessed with the remarkable instead of just doing the unremarkable with remarkable consistency, but it's doing the unremarkable with remarkable consistency that ends up creating these amazing breakthroughs and um and allows us to tap into those things. Now, in an ideal world, when it comes to these moments that we think are bigger than others. And truthfully, we should probably try and minimize those and not put them on a pedestal because we're going to make things way more challenging and we need to surrender the outcome. Mm -hmm. But I understand that that's, that's challenging. And we do want to try and be at our best when we want to. So like this week, I would love to be at my best, right? It's a member guest tournament. I don't really care how I play on random Tuesdays, Saturdays, things like that. I train and prepare because I want to play well in tournaments. I want to play well under quote unquote pressure, which pressure isn't real. If you stay in the moment, that's a whole nother thing, (laughs) but there's, there's still, you know, these moments. And so in an ideal world, in our training, we try and make our training ridiculously hard, ridiculously challenging to where we don't have to be super methodical and as intentional when we're in those moments that it can just come through Mm -hmm. that we can just be fully present and just let it come out of us. 
And that's where, you know, that quote from the Navy SEALs that under pressure, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training, trying to put as much energy into the training that when we get into those, those, those moments that are quote unquote bigger, that we can just relax and enjoy it. And what most people do is the opposite. They go through the motions in training. They go through the motions in practice. And then when they get into these moments, they go, well, this one's really important. This is where I really need to do this. And they put it on a pedestal and then they, they falter instead of relaxing, enjoying that you've put in the work and now you can go out and have fun and just, you, you got what you got. It is what it is and have fun instead of, uh, doing that in training and joking around and acting like it's no big deal when you're trained. That's where it needs to be serious. That's where it needs to be really hard. That's where you should make no excuses and push yourself as hard as you can and be super uncomfortable. And then come over here into these moments and be like, nope, ah, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to have fun and loose. And, but most of us do that opposite. Absolutely. And I think that that's a, such a great point because the first and foremost of your, of your company is trained to be clutch. It's training mm-hmm. every single day. And it's like you talked about chop wood, carry water, pound the stone. It's that consistent daily uh, commitment to the process. Like you touched on. And I think another word you had talked about is surrendering the outcome, which I think is extremely yeah. a great perspective, but it's really challenging to train yourself to understand that and be committed to the process. So, oh, the most challenging thing to do, and especially for quote unquote high performers, is to surrender the outcome. What do you mean? No, I should have goals. Eh, I don't know. There's some research Daniel Pink shown that that goal setting actually and focusing on goals increases nefarious behavior. It decreases intrinsic motivation. What happens? You know, let's say you know you're in a a, a big football community. Uh, let's say that Oklahoma or OSU, you know, their goal, which is so funny to me because what program sets the goal to come in last place, right? They all set the same goals. So they're like, oh, well, the, the key this season was, you know, we set our goals high. You set the same goals that every other program in your conference did. You're not special. And all you did is you put more pressure on yourself for no reason, but also what happens if Oklahoma comes out and they lose their first football game? Well, it's going to be really hard, probably almost impossible most years to win a national championship, right? It's gone. Mm-hmm. So then what happens to your intrinsic motivation? Well, what, what now? Oh, well now we no, you just shouldn't have set the goal to begin with. Yeah. You should have focused on controllables. Mm-hmm focused on the process and the results will be what they are. And guess what? You do those things, whether you're in first place or last place, you do those things no matter what. Phil Jackson is the one who told his guys, chop wood, carry water, regardless of the score, regardless of the outcome, regardless of where we're at in the season, you chop wood, carry water. If you do that over and over and over again, regardless of what's going on externally, the results are going to be pretty close to what they should be. John Wooden had the privilege of serving on, you know, John Wooden court for seven years and he never talked about winning ever. Never talks about winning with his guys. Hmm. He focused 
on little stuff like uh, how we put on our socks, how we tie our shoes. And, and he also said, you know, if you guys focus on playing time, he said, there's, there's literally, I can't remember the amount of minutes, but it's like, there's 350 minutes that I have to give in a game. That's a bad thing to focus on. He said, there's an unlimited amount of doctors, lawyers, bankers, business people. So if you focus on using basketball, my words, but his general point, using basketball to develop the character and skills and things that are going to help and stay with you long after basketball, well, then it's no longer a zero-sum game. The same way that there's only one team that can win an NCAA championship. There's only one team that can win a conference championship. It is not a good idea to focus your energy on that. That is a byproduct. That is an, uh, a, a circumstance that is outside of your control. And, and what if you win and you didn't fulfill your potential? What if you win and you develop a whole bunch of bad habits that aren't going to serve you at the next level, that aren't going to serve you in the next season of your life? It, it's just not a good idea to put our energy towards those things. And so I really believe that, you know, and truthfully, when I talk to, you know, I live in a, a big Navy community in San Diego and you talk to guys that have, have been in real warfare and I've read them the passage from Chopwood Carry Water of Surrender the Outcome. And they're like, oh, exactly. That's what you have to do because the guy that you want beside you in battle is the guy that has surrendered to the fact that he can die. You do not want somebody beside you in battle that has not surrendered to the fact that they can die. The likelihood of them dying and getting you killed is exponentially higher because you're going to freeze. You're not going to trust your training. You're going to overthink. But if you've surrendered to the fact that you can die, you're going to be freed up to trust your training, be in the moment, and be closer to your best. So we want to surrender those outcomes. Doesn't mean we don't care about the outcome. Doesn't mean that we don't give our best. It doesn't mean that we don't care about the process, but I can't control the outcome. And by trying to control the outcome, I'm going to mess things up inside of the process and I'm going to be my own greatest enemy. Yeah, I think that's fantastic stuff. And, and the ability to have that perspective as you train in the moment when you're actually going through things, you're going back to your training because you put in the work and the preparation beforehand and you've consistently done things over time. So it enables you to not have to think and not have to freeze up in the moments when uh, things are a little bit more pressure tense. So I, I love that. Well, Joshua, I know we've gone over time, but I appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing a lot of some of the lessons that you've learned personally that you apply and you train and help people understand how to do these things every single day. If people wanted to learn more about you, what's the best way of doing that and reading your books? How, how do they go about doing that? Uh, I, you, you're probably better at answering that than, than I am. I don't know what you, you can tell them where you think is, is good stuff to go. I, Perfect. I try and stay out of that, but um, I just try and add value. And, and the one thing I do want to say, it's easy on, on platforms like this, uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that I've done. There's a lot of times uh, under pressure that I have performed very well or won certain things and had achievements. But this stuff is a struggle. It's a daily grind. 
Um, there's lots of other areas of my life where I am incredibly human and mess up all the time. And it just so happens that this is one thing that I care about and, and work hard at, but I, you know, I'm, I'm still human just like the, the next person and have a million shortcomings and, and faults. And so, uh, I want to make that very clear, uh, as sure. well. Absolutely. Well, this podcast is called building excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? Building excellence to me means doing those little things every single day and really focused on, it's funny that that that's what it's called. And that's what you talk about because that same conversation I was having with my client, I, I just said like, this is what it's really about. It's be present and, and pursue excellence. Mm. And if you do that everywhere that you go and everything that you do, results are going to be really good. You know, there's that ancient proverb that says, um, do you see any competent workers? They will serve kings rather than mere men. And when you're a kid and you read something like that, or even when you're young and you read something like that, it's like competent worker. But then you get older and you go to a lot of places and you're like, are there any competent <laughs> workers? Are there any? <laughs> like, how rare is it in your day-to-day -day life to find somebody that pursues excellence in their craft at their job. It is the most rare thing. It is a special thing to see. You set yourself so far above so quickly just by being present and pursuing excellence. You don't have to worry about promotions. You don't have to worry about achievements. You don't have to worry about uh, performing under pressure. Because if you're just present and you pursue excellence as much as you can, then excellence eventually is going to be a byproduct of what you do. Instead of 97% of the time and then trying to be excellent in the 3%. No, just be present and pursue excellence. And then it doesn't matter when the lights come on because the lights really are only revealing what's going on in the dark. When you see, when you turn on your TV and you see somebody, you know, doing something extraordinary, you know, what Jimmy Butler is doing is extraordinary, but let's go back all the way to when he spent an entire off season and he got a house that had no internet, no TV. And he realized that the only way he was going to become who he wanted to become was to bust his and have no distractions and pursue excellence. Cut out everything else and just do the work. And then now we turn on the TV and it's like, oh my God, look what he's doing. But this has been building for a long time. That building excellence started, I think he was doing that about nine years ago. It's different when you have built excellence. You're not just trying to catch excellence. Yeah. You've actually built it. You've yeah. actually been present. You've done the work. So, yeah. And it goes back to winning in the dark, like one of your books that you wrote. So I couldn't agree more. That's those are great perspectives and great examples of actually doing that. And Joshua, thanks for coming on the show. And thank you for helping uh, not just the clients that you coach, but the books that you write help people that read the books to go and do that in their own life. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. And I appreciate you taking the time to, to read the books.
hope you enjoyed this episode of the Building Excellence Podcast. If you found value today, we would really appreciate it if you shared the show and left a rating and review. Also, be sure to follow us on all podcasts and social platforms, as well as YouTube, where you can watch full video episodes. To learn more about the podcast or any coaching or speaking, check out baileymiles.com. Thanks again, and now go work to build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy.